friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Today, I want to turn to a wonderful publication called Angelus. I happen to write for Angelus. Angelus is the multimedia news platform of the nation's largest archdiocese, the Archdiocese of L.A. You know, that's a really interesting archdiocese. It's uh, not only the largest, it's also extremely diverse. The Mass in Los Angeles is told in many different languages. We're going to get more details about that later. And the uh, head of the archdiocese is Archbishop Gomez, who also happens to be the president of the United States Council of Bishops. Anyway, just a really interesting place, Los Angeles, with a really great publication called Angelus. It has a component online, but it also produces a magazine that is really wonderful and has really amazing writers that write for it, not because I'm one of them, because I'm not one of the amazing writers. For instance, Bishop Barron, also Scott Hahn uh, are two of the writers. Another one is Mike Aquilina, who is going to be talking to us today at the top of the show. He's a fabulous writer and a great Catholic author, and he's written recently something that really uh, caught my attention in Angelus. Uh, which actually comes to your mailbox if you subscribe, which is a wonderful thing these days. I love to actually feel the print in my hands, feel the weight of the paper. We spend so much time online. Uh, me, for instance, my day job is radiology, so I spend so much of my day sitting in front of the computer looking at black and white images. And then um, to you know, when I'm waiting to sign reports and things, I'll turn to my other screen and I'll, I'll check the news. And it seems to me sometimes that my day is being absorbed by the computer. And then when I want to read something interesting, maybe I'm reading on my Kindle or on my phone. Um, I'm reading something digital. Even if it's a great book, just the fact that it's always on a screen is is, is tiring, right? I don't know. And it makes me feel that, that we're living in this uh, pretend world all the time. So anyway, Angelus, if you get a subscription, will actually come into your mailbox and you can pick it up and hold it in your hands and leaf through the pages. And it's such a novel feeling these days. I don't even know anyone who gets newspapers anymore. That's how far along we've come in this digital revolution. Well, I'm sure we'll be sorry for it later in many ways, even though it's brought us a lot of wonderful things. For instance, one thing I love about digital reading is that there are so many things available online that you could never get your hands on if you wanted an actual print copy. A lot of books that are no longer being published, haven't been published in a long time, and now you can actually, you, you can access them. And of course, it's only on a screen, but at least you get to read the author's words that maybe you could never afford to buy an old edition you know, of, a, of, a, of an interesting work that is not that interesting to so many people. Anyway, I'm both criticizing and lauding uh, the digital revolution, uh, but it still is really nice when you open your mailbox and you see a magazine that you can pick up and you can look through and it's full of wonderful things, including yours truly, because I do write for Angelus and and I love to write for Angelus because it's, uh, it's, it's a religious magazine and it allows me to, to put front and center in ways that I, I don't do when I'm writing politically, when I'm writing political things or even, you know, even on the same topic for uh, publications that are mainstream and that are secular, you, you know, you can't really express all the things that are in your heart because so much of what people of faith feel about everything that they do so it is informed by our understanding of God and, our, and of ourselves as sons and daughters of God. It's wonderful to be able to express in Angelus all those different those different uh, lights of, the, of our understanding and, and not leave anything out and, and, and really not leave the most important thing out, which is the way we really fundamentally understand the world. 
We will be talking with Editor-in-Chief of Angelos, Pablo K. later on in the hour about lots of important issues. What's it, well, first of all, what it's like to run a magazine like Angelus and, and to work with so many distinguished contributors, but also about things that are going on with online media, the way the pandemic has impacted it. Before that, I'm very happy to have Mike Aquilina with us. He is a great Catholic author and a frequent writer at Angelus. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me, Gracie. Oh, you know, I feel very proud to share um, a publication like Angelus with people like you, who are such wonderful writers and, and other great uh, uh, writers at Angelus. Later on in the show, we're going to have Pablo K on, because I want oh. he's the editor of Angelus, as you well know, because I really, I wanted him to tell our listeners more about such a wonderful publication, which I'm sure you're very happy to work for. Oh, I sure am. And it's great to share the pages with you. <laughs> you know, Mike, the, uh, I read everything religiously that comes out of um, Angelus. And I, I read a piece from you last week. It was, it was absolutely fabulous. And I hope that all our listeners uh, will, will take the time and, and I'll tell them at the end how to, how to find it. But it was about the, the way that abortion has always been at the first and foremost, um, always from the beginning, from day one for, for Christianity, something to be rejected completely. And I'll just quote, I'll quote from your piece to get us started. Abortion was, in fact, the first social injustice confronted by Christians. That's absolutely true. And, uh, and Christians were the first to confront the world about, about this injustice, about the, about the injustice that's inherent in abortion. Um, uh, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, the uh, Persians, the Phoenicians, the Romans, the Greeks, everybody was okay with abortion. Everybody was okay with infanticide. The one exception was the Jews, who based their judgments on the law of God and natural law. And they did argue against abortion. But they kept to themselves. They kept within their their war, their quarantine, uh, their uh, their their preserve. You know, they were a people uh, enclosed upon themselves. So they they were not so much a confrontation to those outside their tribe. Once Christianity brings the law of Israel's God to the outside world, it really is a confrontation. And this was one of the stark, startling just astonishing differences between Christians and the rest of the world. And it's probably one of those, those, those issues that exacerbated uh, persecutions. One of the things you say right, right at the front of your piece, uh, and this was news to me, and I'm so glad I read this, and that now I can understand it. Most people believe, and I, and I think I probably did too, that uh, abortion is not mentioned in the New Testament as something to be avoided. I mean, of course, do not kill, but abortion specifically. So explain to our listeners how abortion makes it into the New Testament and how we may not have noticed, even though we've read it several times and hear it all the time. Well, there are several uh, instances of moral inventories, lists in the in the New Testament. We find them in St. Paul, we find them in the book of Revelation, and they'll often list off immoral acts, uh, often sexual acts uh, that, that were condemned by the Christians. And, uh, and, and you'll, 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 you'll find these, as I said, in St. Paul and in the book of Revelation. And in four of these lists, we find, in addition to all the sexual activity you might expect, we find this word that's surprising to modern, modern uh, readers. It's pharmakeia in, in Greek, pharmakeia. So it suggests pharmacy, right? <laughs> Pharmaceuticals. And, and, uh, and it, it's often translated as potions. Sometimes it's translated as sorcery or witchcraft. Well, you went to sorcerers to get your potions in those days, and those were the closest things you could find to pharmaceuticals. Um, and, and often what people w went to these sorcerers for were abortifacient drugs, uh, you know, they, that worked the way the morning-after pill works today, or even the, the common birth control pill works today. It can be abortifacient. So, um, so people would go for these drugs, and the drugs were very effective. If you look at any of the standard histories of abortion, you'll find you know which drugs were used uh, commonly in those days, and 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 how um, how popular they were really. The the one that I usually refer to is Eve's Herbs, um, which is a history of contraception and abortion in the West by John M. Riddle. It came out from Harvard University Press. It's a pro-choice book. It's a pro-abortion book. It it argues for legal abortion, and it says in those years uh, abortion was very common, um, especially by these pharmaceutical methods, but also by surgical methods, and and that of course 
course, is abundantly evident. I quoted some of the accounts the, and the instructional literature um, for abortion in those years as well. When, I'm, when I was reading your piece, I was shocked by the account, for instance, that you refer to. You, you, account, you refer to an account by Tertullian mm-hmm. where he actually describes the, the procedure of abortion exactly in the same way that it's practiced today. And, and I know from being a, a physician, I've never performed an abortion, thank God. But it describes uh, opening the neck of the uterus, inserting an instrument, and pulling out pieces of the fetus. And I'm the first first time I'm reading that, I'm thinking, wow, this is a tremendously painful procedure for the mother. The, all yes. these interventions, the mother must have been howling in pain. Um, yes. But it's it's absolutely the same procedure that's practiced today. That in fact, you know, where there's a there's a Supreme Court case coming up in October that that is uh, directly challenging the fact that these things are done on 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 human beings that can feel pain. Yes, and and it's it's not as if um, this is a, a new idea that's new to the world and the church is coming out of the blue from its benighted past. No, we have been facing this since day one. We have been facing it uh, since before then, actually. And the church has consistently uh, c- condemned condemned abortion in, um, in in all of its forms. So so you find that that in those 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 books by Tertullian, he is quoting from the manuals of, of, uh, of how to perform an abortion that were common in his days. He knew the medical literature, and he was, he was just putting it out there. He said that there was an instrument they called the baby killer. They knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that is, that's the instrument that they used to finish the baby off. They knew what they were doing, and they called it by its name. Um, so, um, so this is not something new, and it's not that the circumstances are any different today. The church was vehement in its condemnation of abortion in the first century uh, and consistent in that. So we find it in so much of the documentary record from that time. It's not as if Tertullian is one voice out there, a lone voice speaking. No, we find it in many of the documents from the first century, the second century, the third century, and then an explosion in the fourth century. So basically Christianity alighted upon this world and said to an unsuspecting world, no, just because your children are annoying to you or they have conceived in ways that that were wrong no you cannot dispose of them and this was this was a complete shock right to the rest of the world yes and it wasn't the only thing uh, that was scandalous to the world many things that the Christians taught were scandals the Christians uh, taught for example that it was morally wrong to beat a slave or rape a slave now these were things that that the Roman world took Look for granted. Of course you can beat your slave. Of course you can rape your slave. You can do whatever you want with a slave because slaves have no rights. Christians would not stand for that. Christians were the first on earth to propose ideas like universal human rights, universal human dignity, um, the, the equality of the sexes. All of these things originate with Christianity. And, uh, and, and uh, these are the foundations of what we today consider Western civilization. Another one of those planks in the foundation was the opposition to abortion, which the Christians saw as another social injustice. Mm-hmm. Once you start taking out planks, all the others start falling in. So, uh, you know, to say that I want to keep all of those others, but I want to get rid of this one that opposes abortion. Well, that's not going to work because it's the same principle um, that drives us to oppose slavery, to oppose inequality, that also drives us to oppose abortion. And Christians were presenting these new concepts, uh, of course, based on the on the foundational idea of, of our faith that each of us is created in God's image, that we are willed into being by a, by our Creator in a personal way, in a specific mm-hmm. way. That's not we're not interchangeable units, or there is not a single human being that that wasn't well planned by God. <laughs> um, yeah. And and the, so Christianity was presenting this, and and it must have been a horrible scandal to a culture that not only performed abortion as a matter of course and accepted abortion, but also practiced infanticide at, at, at tremendous rates. Yes, yes. These, these were very common at that time. So, the, the, you know, the Christians do show up and they have these, these, uh, these 
ideas that seem strange at the time. But, you know, now we're 2,000 years later, and we're living in a civilization that was largely formed by Christianity. What we find is that there are people within our civilization who want to undo what, what, um, what, uh, what, what Christianity has done, especially in these areas. Uh, Dr. Riddle, who wrote this book uh, that's a history of, of abor- abortion, refers to the Christian period, these 2,000 years, as a break in the chain of knowledge, a break in the chain mm. of knowledge. So different is, is Christianity from everything that had gone before, and so different is Christianity from everything that's emerging right now in these, um, in these movements that support abortion. So he's, um, he's looking at that, and he's seeing Christianity as the break in the chain. Well, no, Christianity was the salvation from what had gone before, and I fear the world that we're entering uh, when we no longer believe in universal human dignity, universal human rights, the right to, to life. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we are discussing the Church's Original Social Issue, a great article by Mike Aquilina, with Mike Aquilina, that he wrote recently in Angeles News. So, um, in this book about abortion, the history of abortion, the Christian period of the last 2,000 years is referred to as a kind of obscurantism, correct? Like a time of darkness, uh, Mm -hmm. when light had gone before, and now maybe we're finally emerging out of the darkness of the time when when children were children in the womb were were given value and worth yes yes um if you want kind of the opposite view of it i recommend another book which is which is abortion in the early church uh by by michael gorman and that really does look at this period and and what it actually produced because what did it produce it produced a demographic winter the roman emperors from caesar augustus onward tried desperately to to get people to marry, to get people to have children, and they could not succeed in doing this. They tried to legislate fertility. They tried to tax people for not having children or for having too few children. They, they tried everything they could to incentivize childbirth, and they could not make it go forward. I, it, it's like it never occurred to them that there was a problem with the way they were approaching human reproduction, you know, uh, uh, sexual life, you know, and the happiness of the family. What happens is that Christians come onto the scene and they appear to be revolutionary. They have these families. They have happy families. They have large families. They're not afraid of reproduction. They are reproducing at an alarming rate, and they're illegal in the empire. As a matter of fact, it's a, it's a capital crime to practice Christianity, and yet they're growing so rapidly that it's alarming the authorities. Well, by uh, the end of the second century, the Roman emperors begin to realize that uh, that 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 all of their efforts at promoting uh, fertility for economic reasons are just failing. They can't legislate happiness in a family. They can't legislate uh, 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 fecundity. They they just can't make it happen. Um, so so um, so they try something pretty bold. They start to imitate Christian morality, and for the first time in history, you find anti-abortion laws begin uh, beginning to appear on the books. Uh, in the Roman Empire, anyway, uh, they, uh, there, there are laws against abortion, you know, disincentivizing it, penalizing it, and, uh, and they're trying to, to, uh, to imitate Christians in this way. Well, it didn't work, <laughs> because there was, no, there was no cultural framework for it. There was no philosophical framework. People didn't take it seriously, and the law wasn't enforced, so it didn't go forward that way. But Christians, the Christian Church did go forward, and did develop and, uh, and, and did establish itself as the dominant force replacing the Roman Empire in that time. It wasn't just because of fertility. It's because we, we, we showed a better way. But fertility played no small part in it. Let me quote from your article. The Christian principles that protected the unborn would eventually lead to other notions of univer- like universal human dignity, human equality, human rights, and women and children's rights. I thought that this was um, maybe the the sentence of your piece because I feel very strongly, and I think that uh, most people who are paying attention can see that in a in a culture that doesn't value the unborn, that culture is unable to value any kind of class of person. When you when you say these this class of people is not protected, this class of people can be discarded, then really you're erasing rights for every class of people. You're absolutely right. You know, that's, um, 
earlier in the show, uh, you quoted that great line from Genesis, you know, that we're created in the image and likeness of God. Now, that's, um, that's the foundation of, of all of our polity. That's the, uh, the, the foundation of all of our medical ethics. That's, that's, that's what we believe about, about everything in our social interactions, that all of the people we come in contact with are radically equal to us, mm-hmm. you know, that we're all equal before God. We're made in His image and likeness. And that changes everything. Now, everybody likes the result of that. Everybody likes having rights and dignity. Everybody likes those things, right? But they also want to be able to, to do, what, do as they wish with other people, mm-hmm. right? So they, they introduce a sliding scale of personhood. The problem is that it doesn't work. You can't have a, a sliding scale of personhood so that prisoners, for example, are less worthy of dignity than people on the outside, right? Mm -hmm. Because then what we find is that prisoners are abused. Prisoners are treated very badly. They're given a bad life, and, um, and they're not treated uh, as, as someone who bears the image and likeness of God. Well, it's the same thing with the unborn. You know, uh, uh, you know we, we dehumanize them. We, we introduce this sliding scale of personhood so that they are off the scale. They're off the charts. They no longer have human dignity. I really think that that undermines the whole project of human dignity and human rights, that I think that if you begin to argue that the unborn child, especially a child in the last trimester, and that's legal all through these United States, you know, a child in the last trimester can just be killed at the will of, of, um, of a parent or, or, uh, or a guardian. Well, that's, that's a terrible thing. Um, and uh, and, and I, I don't see how we can go from there to argue uh, and still be able to argue for the dignity of prisoners, to be able to argue for the dignity of people on death row, for example, because, uh, because these things don't hold up. In the case of a child, we're talking about someone who possesses full human dignity. Mike, what, what I find so important about your piece, uh, besides all the truths in it, is that there's, there's something that I encounter all the time in, in conversations um, with people of all ages, not even young people, but people of all ages, is a lack of historical understanding of of the the place of christianity in 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 world history and so they they think about things like abortion that we are confronting new challenges of ideology Mm -hmm. maybe maybe challenges related to advances in science or advances as though as though human beings have progressed to a certain point where now we can we can do away with with restrictive ideologies like respect for the unborn but in fact we're it's always the same, the same uh, dry, the, the same ideals of Christianity confronting the same old ugliness of paganism. It's like we're having the same conversation all the time, but people now think it's a brand new conversation with new parameters. Yes, you know, all 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 society uh, is based on religion. All culture is based on cult, and it makes a difference which cult, which religion you you base it on. Okay, uh, the Buddhist religion produces a fundamentally different kind of culture mm-hmm. from from the, from our Western culture. Same thing with Hinduism. It's the same thing with with Islam. Uh, a different cult will produce a different culture. I happen to like the culture that has been produced by. by Christianity and Judaism. I think it's produced um, a, a, a culture of liberal tolerance, uh, a culture of, um, of human rights that's unprecedented in the world. Um, uh, I, I like these things that we've gained as a result of the, of the Christian revolution. It was, it was Jewish in, in origin, but it went out to the world through Christianity. I love what it's produced. I think we have to look at the cultures that are on offer and say to ourselves, which one do we want to live in? And if the culture we're living in is becoming something other than it's been before, we have to ask, what are we becoming? How are we going to treat people in the future of this culture as it's developing? Mike, our listeners know, if they've been listening, I haven't adopted, my husband and I have an adopted child from China. And when I, 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 I compare our cultures, that's a radically unchristian culture in general, well, although there's many Christians and Catholics in China. And when I went to China to adopt her, first of all, she was a child who was abandoned at birth on the street due to a culture that worships um, the state instead of mm-hmm. God and due to a one-child policy, which is brutal and and. and uh, forces abortion on women of, of big babies and makes women hide to have their children. I mean, terrible things all around this lack of idea of the dignity of life. 
And when mm-hmm. I was in China, and I would carry my little girl around and uh, at the market or just out for a walk, people would walk up to me, Chinese people walk up to me, and they would point at me holding my baby and they would say, Christian. Because wow. they were able to, they in China were able to draw that line between Christianity and adoption. A Christianity wow. and the dignity of life. Christianity and caring for a child that an entire country doesn't care for. And hospitality. You know, this welcoming idea that created Western institutions like the hospital. Mm-hmm. The hospital was based on the welcoming of people nobody else had wanted. Sick people, mm-hmm. diseased people, contagious people. We created the first hospitals that took everybody in, that had monks and nuns caring for people um, to, to the moment of their death or until the moment they they. Uh, they, they got well. Um, w- they were willing to do this. As a matter of fact, I live in Pittsburgh. Uh, many times in the early history of my city, uh, the, uh, the town fathers tried to start a hospital. And you know what? The enterprise always fell apart at the first epidemic. When there was an epidemic, everything closed up because nobody wanted to treat patients with cholera, with mm-hmm. smallpox. Of course. Because they knew that it would be a death sentence for themselves and for their families. They didn't want to go home with the disease. So who were the first to establish a hospital in my city? Well, it was the Sisters of Mercy, because they were willing to keep the hospital open through an epidemic, through a cholera epidemic, and, uh, and they did, and, uh, and, and some of them died in the process, but they showed that they were willing to do it. And that was the first hospital in the city of Pittsburgh. I suspect that many cities in the United States have similar stories behind their first hospitals. Well, that's, you know, these are such wonderful connections that they seem so obvious to me and you, Mike. I I hope that our listeners are making those connections, too, and and are able to express them to the people around them. The the connection between cult and culture, the connection between respecting the life of the unborn and respecting all the other rights that come with being a daughter and son of God. So thank you so much for joining us today, Mike. I'm sorry we're out of time. It, It was really pleasant to have you, and I hope that you join us again. And I hope that our listeners will go to Angelus News uh, online and look up your beautiful piece. Um, Give us the title again, Mike. Uh, The title in the printed piece was called An Ancient Social Injustice. It might be called something different online, but if you you search on abortion and, and my name, Mike Aquilina, you'll see it there. Well, thank you again for joining us. Thank you for having me. to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. And next up, we have Pablo Kay. He is the editor-in-chief of Angeles News, a wonderful publication. Um, their magazine that you can get actually in paper in your mailbox is called Always Forward. I'm very happy to be a contributing writer for that publication. And also, I turn to it online for all the latest in Catholic news. It's uh, really a wonderful site. So welcome to the show, Pablo. Hi, Gracie. Thank you for having me on. No, I'm really happy that you're here with us. I wanted all our listeners to to learn about Angelus. I'm sure many of them receive it or use it to get uh, the latest Catholic news online. But it's such a wonderful publication, and you, all of you are doing such a fabulous job that I wanted to highlight you. Well, we're both a, a little bit biased, right? Yes. I'm the editor, and you're a, <laughs> you're a columnist for us. So. Okay, but I get a lot of wonderful feedback all the time about Angelus. In fact, somebody today, we were having a conference call uh, um, amongst people who are very plugged into the Catholic media world and several people piped up and said, well, Angelus is fabulous. Well, that's good to hear because because I as the editor, you know, you tend to get the uh, more of the angry letters or, or the complaints, which are, are natural and, and part of the job. But that's always good to hear. <laughs> well, don't get me started on medicine. You know, we doctors never hear anything good. It's only complaints. <laughs> no one calls to say you did a great job on that radiology reading. <laughs> that's right. Let's start from scratch, because a lot of people maybe don't know some really amazing things about the publication and where it comes from. So first of all, it is the organ of the Archdiocese 
Archdiocese of Los Angeles, correct? Right. We are the bi-weekly news magazine of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, and, and we're also kind of a, a multi-platform, if you will, multi-platform uh, news service, which, which means that in addition to the magazine, we have a, a website that's updated throughout the day, every day, with our original content, as well as news from some of the most trusted Catholic uh, news sources out there. Then we also have a, a daily newsletter, Always Forward, which is totally free. You can sign up at our at our website, angelusnews.com. Um, and that gives every morning or early afternoon, if you're on the East Coast, kind of the, the, the Catholic news that you need to know for the day and so we we use content from our from our angelusnews.com website but also kind of give a roundup of some of the important uh, reporting and content that's kind of floating around that day from even from secular news sources we are based in los angeles so so some of there there is a, a certain a local element to some of the the news we gather but certainly not all and even you know noise forward we try to include basically what people are talking about so even if there's a there's a new york times think piece on uh, uh, the morality of vaccines. We try to give as, as broad a scope as possible. The, the goal is to inform our readers, and we know that that just can't com come from one news source, right? So with Always Forward, we try to give as a broad and informed view as possible for people to uh, to kind of have their, their news diet satisfied every day. I, I feel um, that being out of LA, you have a special cosmopolitan or very inclusive view of, of what's happening in the world because Los Angeles is such a diverse place and the Archdiocese of LA has all the work that they do is done on so many different cultural levels. Is that true? It is. And before anything, Los Angeles is the biggest diocese in the United States. I think it's the fifth or sixth biggest in the world. And we're in the media capital of the country, arguably the world, and I guess in some respects. So I think my boss, Archbishop Jose Gomez, is conscious of that, and that's why he's committed to making sure that the, the news operation of his diocese it kind of reflects that and, and takes up that responsibility. Yeah, because it is a, a grave responsibility to, to to reflect the world back at people in a way that culturally is accessible to them, I think. Right. We also have to realize, I mean, being a, a millennial <laughs> myself still, but I think everyone has to realize, right, every generation, that the world that we live in today, that Catholics are living in today, is very different from, from what it was even 10, 20, but especially 50, 60 years ago. I mean, to be a Catholic in today's world, I hate to sound dramatic, but you have to fight. I mean, mm -hmm. you really have to. And to fight, you have to be armed, right? And I think one of the the most important weapon, if you will, is, is the gift of faith that baptism gives us, right? But uh, behind that, I think uh, what's really important is, is to be informed, be informed about what's going on in the world, and then also what the church's response is in front of, in response to what's going on in the world. So, for example, I think um, with something like, I hate to, to go to maybe the, the low-hanging fruit here, but something like uh, like gender ideology, right? The transgenderism, the LGBT movement. There's so many, on one hand, there's this immense pressure and, if you will, confusion in today's secular world about this topic. A Catholic, a, a good, a well-intentioned Catholic can look around and say, well, Jesus said, love everyone, love your enemies, love love your, your neighbor, your brother and sister. And so, well, this word love is means let's, uh, why not accept anyone and anything, right? Mm-hmm. What does it take if if people aren't being informed well, either in their parishes or in their families, or to, to know what the, what the Catholic Church teaches, the richness of, of Catholic teaching on sexuality, on the family, on uh, on our own human anthropology, who we are, where do we come from, what is the meaning even of our, our bodies? You know, what, what it, it may seem like a like a, a an out there example, right? But this is a, a concrete kind of reality that all of us are dealing with, right? Um, it, through the media, even in our own families, you know, you, one of your children comes home one day and, and tells you that they're going through this or they're not sure about that. So if we as Catholics aren't equipped, we're not informed, not only about what's going on in the world and what's going on in the church, but how the church guides us to respond to, to these kind of phenomena that are happening in the year 20. 2021, then I think we're in trouble, right? So Angelus, uh, and I think 
we're not the only ones that do it, but I, I would hope that we're the ones who do it best. Part of, I think, being a, a Christian is, a, uh, I hate to be blunt here, but we, we can't be stupid, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we, need to, we, need to be, we need to have our eyes open to what's going on, and we also need to see wh- where the church, uh, where, where ordinary Catholics like you and me are stepping up and, and, and doing good things and bringing people to the church, bringing people to Jesus Christ, which is, in the end, is to bring people to happiness. You mentioned the name of the newsletter is Always Forward. What a great motto. It comes from San Junipero Serra, if I'm not mistaken, Pablo. Um, that was his motto. And it does indicate, in this context that we're talking about, a willingness to meet the world where the world is and then push forward, like not to be in an attitude of defensiveness or let's hide in our bubbles and not be exposed to the things that we find hard to understand or that we feel that we're not equipped to handle. Exactly. So the interesting thing about San Junipero Serra is, as many of your listeners, I'm sure, know, is that he was kind of the apostle of, of California, right? He was mm-hmm. a, a Franciscan missionary from Spain. He really laid some of the first seeds of the faith there in California. Angelus, before, in 2016, what is now Angelus was The Tidings. It was a, a weekly newspaper published by the Archdiocese. And in 2016, my predecessor, together with Archbishop Gomez, um, they made the, the decision to transition to a new format, a weekly magazine, and a new name, Angelus. The first edition was July 1st, 2016, the feast day of St. Junipero Serra. And, and it was the first, uh, so to speak, feast day of St. Junipero Serra, because as you can remember... Pope Francis the year before in 2015 in September had canonized Saint Junipero during his visit to Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. So there was kind of, there's kind of this whole Junipero Serra theme there, of course, and just like you say, it, I think it's exactly that. It's it's this theme of of looking forward, of of going forward. I mean, if you look at the life of this saint, um, nothing could stop him, and he had his weaknesses. I'm sure he had his sins, like you and me. But the guy put up with such an immense amount of spiritual suffering, physical suffering. I mean, his feet, illnesses, everything, and his his. Thin- was always forward. I, I was just at a funeral this morning, so it makes me think, well, the only way is forward if, if you and I want to get to heaven. So <laughs> so I kind of have that in my head today. Forgive me. No, no, it's a wonderful way to think about life, right? We, we push forward. We know what our eventual goal is, where we want to reach. We want to bring as many people as we can with us, starting with our families. And how wonderful to have someone like, like San Junipero very much at the center of the, of the idea of Angelus News. If you're just joining us, I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're talking with a dear friend and colleague, Pablo K. He's the editor-in-chief of Angelus News. You know, San Junipero, of course, is a person, sort of a lightning rod for people who uh, don't understand him very well, don't understand the history of California. In my opinion, I think it's a lack of understanding of the very beautiful, complicated history of, of California and how intertwined it is with the history of the church and people like San Junipero, those missionaries. You know, sometimes we feel now in, mod- in our modern day, we feel confronted by the culture and changes that have happened and the way it's so hard to understand and the way human anthropologies, our understanding is meant to shift constantly. Every day we, see, we, we are confronted by new ideas that don't make any sense. I do think about someone like San Junipero who, who confronted an alien culture, something that alien in the sense that he, it was alien to him, he had to learn to understand it, and then he was able to evangelize it. We're not really in a different position from people like the missionaries. Right. And St. Junipero, more than anything, at, at the end of the day, what he brought to California was news, right? He brought a good Oh, that's uh, a great, news. yeah, wonderful way to think about it. I think there's a, a, a church father, someone who says that, you know, Christianity, um, it's not a philosophy. Um, and in a sense, it's not a religion, right? A religion, every every culture has some form of religion. So, you know, you do a sacrifice, you ask God for something, and you, you do this, and you expect something back. But more than anything, Christianity is a good news. And now we, we see that the good news that he brought led to something, right? It, it bore fruit. So, of course, in a sense, it's much more difficult today because we have so much news. We're bombarded with all kinds of messages, Catholic or not, right? We're, we live in this world. And just like you said, the, the point isn't to, to withdraw into our safe space, to be sheltered, to only um, listen to one news channel or, or read one newspaper. We're called to be out there and, and be a, some, a sign of contradiction, right? Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, 
what's the news that we bring? I have no pretensions as, a, as the editor of a magazine. Um, I don't expect that Angelos is going to convert anybody or, or even change anyone's life necessarily. But uh, I think the one of the worst things we could do, is, especially in the media, is, is have this kind of savior complex. But we can certainly help. And if we're, we're shedding light on the things that matter, that I think we're already uh, we're already doing a big help to the church and to the world. Well, I think you underestimate the power of Angelus, Pablo. There are so many opportunities. Every time we interact with someone on print, in the news, and every time that we have an effect on someone just by the fact that they're, they're imbibing information or imbibing a concept, there is tremendous opportunities for spiritual growth. And we don't ever see that. There's very few times that we can turn around and put our finger on something and say, oh, I had this amazing impact on this person's life. No, for sure it is. <laughs> In my editor's chair, what I see is, I think more and more with our cell phone, with our with our AirPods and whatever, it's it's really hard to get people to stop and read. So obviously, that's why we that's why we we're so we put so much effort into having an online presence, also on, on social media and our newsletter, and really to try to get people to stop. There's some interesting and, and some good things to, to read and hear. You have really good contributors. You want to tell us about some of them? You can skip me. Don't worry about me. <laughs> uh, sure, we have Catherine Jean Lopez, who I'm sure many of your uh, your readers know or your listeners know well. Sure. Uh, she's a she doesn't need any introduction or anything. Really, one of the most important voices in the in the church in the country today. Then there's Mike Aquilina, who uh, is probably the smartest person I've ever met. Well, really, he's sharing uh, he's sharing this radio hour with you, Pablo, because I interviewed him a little while ago, and he he was amazing. <laughs> so well, our listeners just heard him. Just heard him. Yeah. Then don't tell him I said that. <laughs> okay. But um, uh, as you just heard it, I think he he speaks for himself, right? Mm. The important thing is we have to make sure that we as Catholics don't stop thinking, right? It's easy to stop thinking in today's world. You can just hook yourself up to Netflix for hours or, or to your Spotify or to your, you know. And so I think we, we Catholics need to be thinking and, and even debating. And uh, so Angela tries to provide a space for that. You did an, an interview of Bishop Barron recently that I really liked. Yeah, well, you know, Bishop Barron, I suspect that Pope Francis, uh, when he named him a bishop, sent him to L.A., knowing the savvy and the gifts he has and so sent him to the media capital of LA and he's, he's just a huge blessing even though he, he he's very busy as a bishop and then he also was involved with Word on Fire I saw that that Bishop Barron was starting to get some attention over some comments he had, he had made on, on wokeism I sent him a note and, and I said hey Bishop I have a few I think we could uh, develop this conversation a bit more and again the thing was to, to get his thoughts kind of out there and crystal on on exactly what we're doing, what we're seeing with the kind of woke movement, which I would add, and I didn't say this in the interview, but I think that the definition of woke has changed a lot the last eight years or so, which is when I kind of first remember hearing it on the radio and songs, you know, woke for me was was just you know kind of be in the know keep your eyes open you know kind of know what's going on but now i think it's transformed into this this whole ideology right which is what bishop Barron was was trying to get at so i, I think that interview was fascinating because it does leave some room for debate in terms of uh, what exactly this movement means and what the the catholic response is and i even asked him uh, i named a few saints i think like dorothy day or archbishop romero you know wouldn't they be in their own right in their own time because considered kind of woke and he answered in the in the negative <laughs> it was great that you were you were able to elicit that and put that down on paper because you could i felt that it was a way of understanding it as a catholic which gave me more strength to resist because um you know there's always this feeling that well maybe things have changed or maybe right. or as you said in the beginning when we started talking maybe my response ought to be acceptance because love in many ways implies acceptance of the other and but in, in that interview i was able to understand how some of this woke ideology goes against real love, the real love of charity that God um, is teaching us through his church. And, and Bishop Bierum gave that, that interview in the context, a book that his, his publishing apostle at Word on Fire just published, which is kind of like a compendium, a collection of different writings from the saints and some of the popes throughout the years on social justice issues, right? And so if there's anyone who would kind of understand how the church 
would respond to this new reality, I think it would be the guy who put that book together. <laughs> so, so that was that was nice. So, Pablo, I'm sorry to say that we're out of time, but can you tell our listeners how to access all this wonderful content in Angeles? Well, I have good news for our readers. So, for our website is uh, Angeles with a U.S. at the end news.com. There you have all our content um, you can read. There's no paywall or anything. And right now we have a, a special offer. Uh, if you'd like to to receive our print publication right now, there's a special offer for just $9.95 for a whole year, which is nothing. And I, I know for me personally, I need to start off my day reading something that isn't on a screen because I know I'm going to spend the rest of the day on the tablet, on the laptop, the TV, whatever. So so maybe that's an incentive if, if for nothing else. Get some paper in front of you. <laughs> I, agree. To read. I, I totally agree, Pablo. It's it's terrible to be see everything in our world through a glass, right? Like even now, our alarm meetings are on Zoom, <laughs> which is horrible. Right. And if I can add, like I said before, for our free newsletter, Always Forward, if you just, uh, there's a button at the top of the homepage. Also, if you scroll down, uh, you can you can sign up for our, our free newsletter. Just put in your email and, uh, and try it out. Well, thank you, Pablo. It was a delight having you on. Thank you so much, Gracie, as always. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, which is the second of five weeks of meditation on the sixth chapter of St. John's Gospel, which Jesus speaks to us prophetically about the reality of his presence in the Holy Eucharist and how we should respond to it. At the beginning of the Gospel, we see that those who received Jesus' free meal in the miraculous multiplication of loaves and fish were looking for another free meal. Jesus called them out on it because he wanted to help them grow in faith. Amen, I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw signs. In other words, because you saw me perform a miracle. It's led you to put faith in me and my words. But because you ate your fill of the loaves. They came because of their material hunger and saw Jesus as a means to address those hungers and their needs. This is not evil in itself. Jesus would teach us to pray, give us today our daily bread. Many come to the Lord not just with wants, but material needs, not knowing how to pay the rent or put food on the table, purchase medications, or find a job to help support loved ones. God wants us to bring him these prayers. As a loving father, he wants us to bring our needs to him. Wasn't this that Jesus was criticizing? Jesus was criticizing the fact that they had stopped there, that they were concerned most about their material needs. He tells them and tells us, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. So many people, good people, spend most of their adult lives working to put food on the table to nourish themselves and their families. We all know how important that is. But Jesus is saying that as hard as we work to fulfill that duty of love, we must work much harder for the food that he will give us, the food of eternal life. What is that food that God puts on the table? What is that nourishment of eternal life? Most people spend 40 hours a week or more, sometimes working two or three jobs for perishables. What is the imperishable nutrition for which Jesus tells us we should strive even more strenuously? There are four interconnected answers to that question. First is knowing God's word. In the battles to which Jesus was exposed in the desert, he was asked by the devil to turn stone into bread to feed his incredible hunger after having fasted 40 days and nights. Jesus replied by saying, Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. To work for this food means to strive to know, understand, treasure, and put into practice all the words that comes from God's mouth to feed us. This leads directly to the second common interpretation of the food that endures to eternal life. Doing God's will. Jesus says elsewhere in the gospel, My food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's why it's unsurprising that Jesus later in the spread of life discourse at the Capernaum synagogue will say, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The third type of food for which we're to endure is the work of faith. Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life that the Son of Man will give you. And when the crowd replies, what can we do to accomplish the works of God? He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he sent. 
we need to believe in Jesus and believe in what he says and does. That work of faith is the most essential element in laboring for eternal life in general. But it's also essential for us to believe in what Jesus says about the upcoming fourth response, which is the most obvious one for those who have pondered the bread of life discourse many times. The food that endures to eternal life is Jesus' presence in the Holy Eucharist. All four of these interpretations, of course, go together in the celebration of the Mass. We begin with God's Word. We make an act of faith with regard to it. We unite ourselves with God's will and do this in memory of Him. Then have the awesome privilege of receiving the Word made flesh, God's daily spiritual gift. Becoming one body with Christ in the Eucharist is meant to help us become one with His will and faithfully accomplish it in the world. But the main point for us is not simply to know what the imperishable nourishment for which we should be striving is, but actually to live for it, to labor for it, to direct our efforts toward it as a goal, as our reward, as our desire. The end of this Sunday's Gospel, still obsessed about food and free meals, the crowds ask Jesus, What sign can you do that we may see and believe in you? Saying our ancestors ate manna in the desert, as it is written, He has given them bread from heaven to eat. Apparently, the multiplication of loaves and fish wasn't a big enough sign. But let's turn to the manna. The Jews were grumbling in the desert, fearful that they would starve to death. So Moses brought their complaints and pleas to God, and God replied by saying, I'm going to rain down bread from heaven for you. And each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. Every morning for 40 years, they awoke to find a miraculous edible dew that looked like coriander seed with a white gum-like resin, tasting like wafers made with honey. The Israelites had no idea what it was and hence called it manna, which literally means, what is it? Moses told them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat, instructed them to gather as much of it as each one needed for a day. This is how they survived for 40 years in the desert until they reached the promised land. Every morning except the Sabbath, God in his wisdom made the Israelites get the manna. But even on the Sabbath, they would eat the second daily portion of manna that they had gotten the day before. The book of Exodus tells us that God made them do this every day in order to test them, to see whether or not they would follow his instruction and be faithful. Jesus, in the Gospel this Sunday, applies the history of the manna to the reality of his presence in the Holy Eucharist, saying that he is the true manna, the true bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The crowd's response was materialistic, but nevertheless prophetic. Sir, they said, give us this bread always. And Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. If the Jews needed to consume the manna every day in the desert, and Jesus is the true manna, he's implying that we should be working for this true bread every day. In the Our Father, Jesus taught us to pray not, give us today all the bread we're going to need this week, or give us now all we'll ever need, but give us this day our daily bread. Because he wanted us to recognize that every day God wants to grant that prayer. The early saints commented at length about the Greek word we translate as daily, epiousios, which literally means supersubstantial. They said it referred less to the material bread that we need to consume for physical survival, but to the bread that goes beyond our substance, the Eucharist that we need for our souls. The early saint said that Jesus was teaching them to pray that the Father would give us each day the Eucharist. In response to the request of the Jews, Sir, give us this bread always. God the Father has, by giving us his Son's body and blood and making it available not just on Sunday in a special way, but every day. God has desired to give us each day this daily bread come down from heaven because he knows that we need to be fed spiritually each day. I'm convinced from both personal and pastoral experience that one of the real proofs of whether we recognize that the Eucharist is really Jesus and whether we truly love the Lord Jesus can be seen in our attitude toward daily Mass. Even if a Catholic can't physically be present every day at Mass because of other pressing responsibility or because there isn't a priest in the person's parish every day celebrating Mass, our hearts should always be longing for this encounter. That should be our great hunger. Sir, give us that bread always and give us today our supersubstantial bread should be our most persistent aspirations. 
and our gratitude to God's answering that prayer by raining down for us each day this true bread from heaven should know no bounds. Do not work for the food that perishes, Jesus says, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. This Sunday and each day this week, we have a chance with gratitude and God's help to do so. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 